Welcome to the Mormon Marriages Podcast. I am Angeline Bagley. And I am Nate Bagley. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that the most important thing in life is your family, and the backbone of your family is your marriage. So on this podcast, we talk with couples from the church who provide amazing insights into what it takes to create a marriage that will make you look forward to eternity. It would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show, uh, review it on iTunes, and reach out to us if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas to make it even better. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoy the show. So today we're going to be talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yes, we are. Not uh, death, famine, pestilence, and the other one uh, that you find in in Revelations, but we're going to be talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriage. Right. So if you're familiar with the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible. (laughs) I didn't finish my It's this book (laughs) that we read. Um, in the book of Revelations, it talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse as kind of a warning, warning signs to let us know that the second coming is near. Um, and the, just as those are a warning sign for that, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in marriage are more a warning sign for us to know that, okay, we, we've got things we need to work on. So John Gottman calls these the four predictors of divorce. And I think when people hear these, they're like, I have every single one of these in my marriage and we're doomed. We're doomed. But that's not the case. We, we even though we're so, super well-versed in the Gottman method, we still struggle with all four of these. So um, the purpose of going over the, them and teaching them is so that we are more aware of them so that when they do pop up, we can say, oh, okay. This is one of the four horsemen. I probably need to dial it down a bit. This is something I need to work on. So that's why we're going to go over it today. Yeah. So I want to start by talking a little bit about where the four horsemen come from before mm-hmm. we just dive into what they are. Right. So we've kind of talked about this in past lessons, but I think it's important to cover. Um, so you have a brain and your brain's number one responsibility is to keep you alive. And the way that it does that is it protects you from threats. Now, there are a lot of threats in the past, before we had all these luxuries and modern conveniences like central air conditioning and insulation and cars. Speaking of which, it's kind of hot in here. Do you want to open the door? <laughs> you can open the door. Okay, I'm going to open the door. So, you know, before we had all these modern conveniences, there were lots of threats to our physical safety, to the safety of our, to our ability to like live. And one of the threats that was really prominent was the threat of being cut off from the tribe. Like if you did something that got you into trouble, a lot of times you would be exiled or cut off from the tribe. And that is, we're pack animals. We survive in families and in groups. And that is one of the biggest threats that we have. And that, I mean, we, we don't protect ourselves from wolves or tigers very often anymore unless we're up in, in the woods camping or something like that. But now the real threat to our safety and security is doing something that might, might put us in a, a relationship predicament. Mm-hmm. It might mean the end of our marriage or the end of a friendship or, and those, those fears can be really heightened. So what happens is when you sense a threat, your brain goes into what scientists call fight, flight, or freeze. And basically, um, the part of your brain that is responsible for empathy and creative thinking and compassion and logic, it shuts down and the emotional survival part of your brain kicks in. It's the The very, the amygdala. It's like the most animalistic part of your brain it kicks in and it makes you stupid and it makes you 
and, and it triggers these behaviors that are referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So I want to re-echo what Angelin said, which is um, that one, uh, if you, if we, as we go through these four horsemen today, you're going to notice that one of the one or many of them are like your horsemen. <laughs> there are things that you resort to when you're feeling threatened, when you're feeling like things aren't going well in the relationship, when you're feeling hurt. And I don't want you to think that if that's the case, that your marriage is doomed to failure or you could never be in a healthy relationship. I want to go back to the Carl Jung quote that I that I brought up a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the quote is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Now, people who don't know about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, their lives are ruled by these four horsemen. Right, right. And they don't even realize it. And then when things happen, like they get their feelings hurt or they they uh become passive aggressive and get into this, these emotional stalemates that last for days or weeks and their marriage just kind of erodes and falls apart. Uh, they just go, oh, I guess it was just fate. I guess this is just- We just weren't a good match. Yeah, we didn't. I, it wasn't the right person. To be. Or maybe there's something wrong with me. And ultimately, there's not something wrong with you. You didn't meet the right person. It's just you weren't aware that these four horsemen existed. But when you make those things that are unconscious conscious, all of a sudden you give yourself power to actually impact the control, the amount of impact that you get to impact how much impact these things have on you. Does that make sense? You can interrupt that fight or flight response. Yep. You can have and a moment can... where you can say, okay, before I switch into this amygdala mode, is there something logically that I can do yep. instead? So the, the goal here is to beat your instincts. Mm -hmm. It's to beat, your instinct is gonna be to go into the, into the four horsemen and if you can sense them coming on and you can stop them from happening before they get out of control, what happens is they don't have an impact, like a big negative impact on your relationship. So that's right. We want to talk about what those four horsemen are and then how do you how do you cut them off at the pass? How do you yep. prevent them from taking over your marriage? Stephen Covey calls it being proactive versus being reactive. I like you. You're so smart. Thanks, honey. Should we yeah. go and see if we have any comments? Let's. Jamie says the best thing about her week was that she goes for five to seven mile walks on city parks for exercise. Sounds so nice. We should do that today. Let's go for a nice five mile walk. I think it's great. My friend walked a marathon yesterday. Who? Lauren. Good job, Lauren. Yeah, she did. She did. She, her and her Chris friend. Chris Jansen? Yep. Her and her friend uh, walked. That's a long way to go. Uh, a, a 26 marathon. miles? Yep. That's amazing. It's a great Saturday activity. <laughs> So let's talk about number one. I like this, actually. So we're going to throw it up so everyone can see it? I'm going to throw it up. I'm going to throw it up. <laughs> All right. The first horseman uh, of the apocalypse but whatever. is criticism. Criticism is when a complaint is expressed as a character flaw. Thanks, Zach Brittle, for that amazing quote. Yes, that is. It sums up what criticism is in a nutshell. So we'll give some examples of criticism. Criticism is uh, typically accompanied by the words, you always or you never. Mm -hmm. You always do this. You always leave me hanging. You never help me out with the dishes. You never help me clean the house. You're always late. Right. It, Sorry. It, what it does... <laughs> What it does is it takes maybe something that they might have done that hurt you or something that they did wrong. And instead of it being the behavior that they did that hurt you, it's them. You focus on a, their character. It's yeah. them as a person. They're bad. They did some their uh, personality in and of itself is flawed. You're you're attacking them directly. 
So reasons this is problematic is because if you are incessantly critical of your partner, it'll chip away at their self-esteem. It can erode trust. Like frequent criticism can feel like a betrayal over time. It feels like, oh my gosh, I can't do anything right. Why am I in this relationship? I just like, it it, it hurts. Mm -hmm. Um, It can destroy the emotional intimacy in your marriage. Like if somebody feels, if somebody feels like every time they get close to you or make an effort to do something, they're going to screw up and get criticized. They're going to start pulling away and creating a big distance between, um, between the two of you. Uh, it belittles your partner while making you seem superior. And that's, that's more of a, it's more of a contempt behavior, which we'll get into a little bit later, but criticism is definitely the beginnings of contempt, I Mm -hmm. feel like. Um, and it, it doesn't. The, the crazy thing is that oftentimes when we're critical of our partner, it's a goal. We do that to try and get them to change their behavior. But really, it just triggers defensiveness, which is another thing that we'll talk about down the road. So okay. we've talked about. You know, they kind we'll of get feed, to it. these four horsemen kind yeah. of feed off of each other. Um, so criticism is it can be pretty gross. It can be it, it's not fun to be a part of. Do, should we talk about how criticism has showed up in our marriage? Yeah, sure. Do you want to give an example? Um. You go first. Um, one of the things, well, one of the things that we talked about before is the inner critic. Right. Th- this, this one's hard too because <clears throat> criticism often shows up in our marriage as self being self-critical. So I often project my own criticisms that I'm criticizing myself for onto Nate and say that um something that i wish was better in myself when nate says something that will trigger that i just assume that he's criticizing me so and we can get into that when we talk about defensiveness right um let's talk about so i think a really common criticism is cell phone use yeah so a common thing that we talk about in our marriage will be like uh, i'll walk in the door and i this is something i did recently there was a, a bad choice so I started noticing that Angela was spending a lot of time on her phone. And so what I started doing is recording without knowing what I was going to see every time I walked into the room when, that Angela was in. And I just wanted to see how many out of those times when I walked into the room, Angela was on her phone. And I would walk in and I'd be recording her. And then um, she'd look up and be like, ugh, and feel criticized. And yeah. I was doing it to make the, the comment of you're always on your phone. This is ridiculous. Every single time you walked in the door. And then I would show her and then I would show her the recordings. Look, here's here's the three times today and the three times yesterday and the five times the day before. And they started to add up. And and it was a, an attack on her character more than it was a complaint of something that was occurring. And it wasn't a very mature thing to do. And on the flip side of that receiving end of that criticism, it didn't make me want to be better. It didn't make me want to change. It just made me feel really bad about myself. And probably angry at me. <laughs> right. And the other thing that's really interesting is the things that we tend to be most critical of in our partner are typically our own personal flaws. So I know one of the things that you tend to be critical of me about is the way I eat, especially when you are not eating healthily. That's true. Like we try and eat healthy, but there's we fluctuate. It goes in waves. And I, I'm most self-conscious about the way that I'm eating is when I will most kind of dig at Nate if he happens to bring home a pint of Ben and Jerry's or something. I've done that many times. Anyway, yeah. so criticism is not healthy, especially if it happens over an extended period of time. Um, should we jump on to the next one? Yes. So criticism 
oftentimes triggers defensiveness. And that's the second horseman of the apocalypse. And oftentimes these two coincide. Usually when someone criticizes, then it just triggers defensiveness in the others. So um, defensiveness is oftentimes if somebody brings up a a time when they've been hurt or an issue that they have, you usually will cross complain. For example, if Nate comes in the room and and says something about me being on my phone, a defensive response is, well, you're on your phone a lot today too, so you shouldn't even be talking. And it just turns into this back and forth of does that ever go well complaining it never goes well yeah it doesn't another way that people are oftentimes defensive is they play what's called the innocent victim and that sounds like this i guess i just can't do anything right it's always my fault why i guess i'm just a crappy husband and maybe you'd just be better off without me and it's this whole like it distracts from the actual problem that's happening. Right. Because typically defensiveness comes up when a partner is trying to address an issue in the relationship. And rather than being able to talk about the relationship, now it's about trying to talk about, now we have to calm the other person down. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you go from talking about cell phone use to you're not a bad wife, you're not always the problem. And it, it's a way for this person to avoid confronting the thing that they're insecure about. I will claim that defensiveness is my number one horseman. Yes. I struggle really bad with defensiveness. If you're watching live or on a recording, I would love it if you would type in the comments, what is the, as we go through these horsemen, if one of them is something that you resonate with and you're like, oh my gosh, that's me, type <laughs> type it in the chat. Like that's me, criticism, or that's me, defensiveness. Yeah. Um, and as we go through here, I'll tell you what mine is. It's coming up next. Well, and the thing... The thing with defensiveness for me is I often will interpret even a neutral tone from Nate as being critical. So an example of this is, um, <clears throat> let's say Nate comes into the room and he says, so, so what do you got planned for today? Seems like an innocent enough question, right? This is like the worst thing that but, I can say to Angela. But it immediately puts me on the defense. It's like, in my head, I interpret Nate saying, if I don't micromanage you, you're not going to get anything done today and you're just going to waste your day. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, what do, you, what do you got planned for today? He's just interested in my day. Trying to coordinate schedules. But I immediately sure. interpret that as a criticism and become very defensive. And I don't like it. Or if he comes home and says, so what, what did you do today? <laughs> How's your day? Something Tell me about your day. When I'm always like, I did lots today. This was a hard lesson for us to prepare because it forced us to confront the the ugly parts of our relationship. Like we had to have conversations about, hey, what's an example of you doing the thing that you hate most about yourself? And I immediately got defensive. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, well, there was this one time when you did this. And I was no, like, we can't talk. No. About it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't do that. Yeah, it's yeah. funny defensiveness defensiveness is hard and it's hard like it's what oftentimes criticism and defensiveness come in a pair where one partner is overly critical and the other partner is overly defensive but in the case of like me and Ange, it's it's also really hard because angeline i think what exactly what she said does have a really strong inner critic and projects what she thinks i'm thinking what she thinks about herself onto me right 
And uh, like, there are things that we, that I can't talk to Angela about right, right now in our marriage. One because, of them being goals. Yeah. Like we can't talk about goals with, I can share my goals with Angela, but she can't share her goals with me. Because if I ever check up on her about like, hey, how's your exercise goal going? She immediately takes it as a criticism, a criticism as me saying you're failing at your goal. If I you? don't, if I don't check up on her, she's not going to do it. I need to babysit her. So goals, this is, yeah, this is something that I'm working on is being able to talk about goals without getting fired up and defensive. Because I can set my own goals and I will, I will write them down and I will work on them myself, but I don't share them with Nate. Which is really sad for me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I would love to get better at that. I'd love to be more involved in that area of your life and feel like I'm a supporter and not a critic. Uh-huh. Yep. So I offensiveness wanna, yeah. is my number one that I need to, <laughs> the number one that I need to work on for sure. So let's talk about the antidote to defensiveness. For anybody who's like a naturally defensive person, it's like, well, what do I do? Well, how do I work on this? Like you, we always talk about, hey, let's go work on ourselves or go work on stuff, but we want to give you solutions. Like we told you all these lessons are supposed to be practical. So, so we'll go back and talk about the answer of criticism. Then I thought we were going yeah, to talk yeah, about the, the I'm the sorry. We, skip, we skipped over criticism, didn't we? Did we talk I about? I thought we were going to talk about antidotes at the end. But. Oh, we can do that. Should we just go on to contempt then? Yeah. Let's just summarize what they all are and then we can summarize okay. what the antidotes are. That's a good idea. I like the way you think. Thanks, honey. Okay. So contempt. Contempt is my number one. And contempt is what Dr. Gottman calls the sulfuric acid of love. <laughs> he says this is the number one leading indicator or predictor of divorce. If contempt runs rampant in your marriage, it basically means your marriage is going to fail. And I am a naturally contemptuous person. And it's something that I work on a lot. And I'm grateful that I have a patient wife, even though she's a little defensive sometimes. <laughs> So let me talk about what contempt is. Contempt is, um, actually, I can copy the definition here. Uh, I don't know if this whole thing will fit, but we're going to try. Yep. Contempt is when you are truly mean. Um, you treat others with disrespect. You mock them with sarcasm, ridicule, you call them names, you mimic them or use your body language such as eye rolling or scoffing. The, the target of contempt is made to feel despised and worthless or beneath. There's like a sense of moral superiority. This um, is like the holier than thou person. Yeah. The I'm, I'm better than you. Contempt goes, it goes beyond criticism. While criticism attacks the partner's character, contempt assumes that the a position of moral superiority over somebody. So I think this happens a little bit naturally in our relationship just because I am seven years younger than Nate. And so we do have that age gap where an experience Nate, gap. Nate is more experienced than I am in a lot of things. Oftentimes when I'm going through a learning experience, he's already gone through that learning experience. And so I think naturally contempt kind of slips in in that regard. Right. But Nate's favorite thing to do when I do something maybe that annoys him is to mock. So for example, I'm a huge cuddler and I really love to cuddle. And I love cuddling too. But one thing that really bothers me is when he crawls into bed and I immediately just like, just go right next Like I'm not even in bed. I'm like Before getting in the sheets. he has any time to like settle himself down, I'm already like on top of him. And she says this thing. I just want to be close to you. 
which is so <laughs> sweet, which is so sweet. But sometimes like before my head even hits the pillow or I have enough space to lay down and on our huge mattress, it feels like I'm literally on the edge of the bed about to tip over and she's like right there and I don't have anywhere to go. And I'm like, I get a little overzealous with cuddling. So my response to that has been um, smother me to smother her. Like I flip, I roll over and I go, I just want to be close to you. And I scoot right up and I get on top of her and she scoots to the other side of the bed and I push her right up to the edge. And she, and I, on the one hand, I say, I think on the one hand, I'm like, I'm just trying to be playful, but underneath the playfulness is an attempt to make Angela feel stupid right. for what she does. Like, could you just think about what you're doing before you jump and cuddle me? We've gone through this a million times. Can you give me just a few seconds to get settled? And he does it until I get angry. He does yeah. it to the point to where I'm like pushing him off. Not a good look for me. Another thing he does. <laughs> Go ahead. Is he likes to correct my grammar in the middle of arguments. Yeah. Or disagreements. What does that look like? Um... So if I'm if I'm trying to explain myself and I stumble over my words, he'll laugh. Or if I if I say a figure of speech, like she'll say huh? something like, "Oh, I could care less," and I'd be like, "Couldn't care less." <laughs> and sh she'll be like, "Oh my gosh, could you stop?" Again, things that just don't help don't help the situation. Yeah, it just exacerbates things, and it puts myself in a position, a higher position. So. There, there are different, there's like, there's like really blatant contempt. And then there's, there's like covert kind of um, like passive aggressive contempt. And I'm more of the, the passive, passive aggressive, aggressive kind. Contempt. So these are some, just to give you an idea of what contempt could look like. It could be swearing, name calling, any sort of like physical intimidation. So if you're using your emotions or your body to create a one-up or a dominance over your partner, that is contemptuous behavior, screaming, uh, emotional outbursts, interrupting them in the middle of a sentence, cutting them off, um, correcting them, which is something that I do with mm -hmm. Angeline from time to time that Finishing I'm working on. their sentences. Yeah. Yep. I just saw that one. I was <clears> like, oh, yep, that's one. Yep. Um, criticizing them consistently. And uh, so like it's criticism to an extreme, uh, being condescending towards them. So any sort of condescension, which is what kind of sometimes I fall into also as the oldest sibling, I tend to like have a tendency to like, I grew up having younger siblings that I treated not always the best. And so being condescending yeah. is kind of built into me um, or I guess trained into me. Uh, finishing their sentences. You already said that one, making fun of them, which is something that, that I tend to do partly because there's things that Ange does that I think are cute and it's fun to mimic them. But then I realized that if I take it too far, it can be seen instead of being play playful as being insulting. Yeah. Um, using mean or condescending tone of voice, negative body la language, like eye rolling or that's what scoffing. I'm, there's a, I'm an eye roller. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, redoing with it, redoing something that they've done because they didn't do it right. And you don't, it's like saying that they're incompetent. Um, being overly snarky or sarcastic. I know a lot of people think like, oh, my sense of humor is sarcasm or I'm just a little bit of a snarky person. Well, guess what? Sarcasm inside of a marriage doesn't really have a place. And if your sense of humor is based entirely on sarcasm, then basically what it is is a breeding ground for contempt. Mm -hmm. And it can be a really dangerous way to communicate with your partner consistently over time. Now, once again, I want to reiterate, if this stuff shows up in your marriage, 
it doesn't mean your marriage is doomed to, to doomed to failure. Like we have a great marriage and I naturally have the tendency to be contemptuous. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to tell you here, once again, is if you're aware of it, you can do something about it. So because I'm aware that I am prone to doing some of these things, I consciously have to work on them to make sure that I don't hurt my wife. It's just part of who I am. Part of who I am is that I revert to contemptuous behavior when I feel annoyed or threatened or angry or upset or when that fight or flight mode kicks in. When you're not thinking super logically. Yep. When I'm not thinking logically or compassionately, I default to to typically being contemptuous. So this is an opportunity for me to recognize that and and take that, um, take, make a different choice. Uh, Another interesting thing about contempt is that research shows that couples that are contemptuous of each other are more likely to suffer from infectious illnesses like the cold, a, a cold or the flu, um, more yeah. so than people who who are not contemptuous. This is bizarre, but it really does affect your physical health. These these horsemen, the quality of your relationship affects your physical health. It's just crazy to yep. me, but it does. It increases your cortisol levels. You heal you heal less quickly. It's really interesting. Like there's a lot of really interesting um They talk side about effects. it in um I think just the first couple chapters of the seven principles for making marriage work. It's there's a whole section of it in um Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson. The whole yeah. first chapter is about the there's a huge section on just the physical benefits of having a strong marriage and how much physical suffering it can cause and like depression, anxiety, um weakened immune system propensity right because stress manifests itself in your body through illnesses and contempt causes massive stress right um yeah so we kind of talked about our story here and we talked about that it's the greatest predictor of divorce all right so should we talk about stonewalling yes let me copy the definition here do you want to tell what everybody everybody was stonewalling so stonewalling is essentially shutting down in the middle of conversations. And this is something I also struggle with when I feel like I'm overwhelmed with the conversation that's happening. I'll just stop talking Mm. and essentially put a wall up between us and, um, the conversation is over. So it's when a partner emotionally withdraws, shuts down and stops responding to their partner. Um, it, it often looks kind of like, you know, arms crossed, looking down the person continues to talk at you and you just revert your gaze and don't don't respond that's stonewalling yep and most of the time john gottman talks about an example of usually what's going on in the mind of the person that's stonewalling is usually like when is this going to be over if i stop talking are you talking talking am i talking too quiet no, I just want to make, because it's just a very one directional microphone. Okay. If you're talking that way, people might not be able to hear you. Um, so sorry, what are what are people thinking when they're stonewalling? Usually like, when is this conversation going to be over? If I don't engage, maybe she'll stop. Um, man, how long can she go on for? Kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's It's really a defense mechanism. It's like, okay, I'm flooded. I'm not going to engage in this conversation anymore. Yeah, like... 80 to 85% of stonewallers are men. Um, and there's a reason for this. The research shows that, and this is really interesting, men are actually less emotionally resilient than women. And so stonewalling is actually a side effect or a symptom of emotional flooding. So emotional flooding happens when you experience so much emotion that you 
you don't know how to process it and you don't know what to do with it and you feel overwhelmed. That's typically when your heart rate kicks in, you get the the tunnel vision and the sweaty palms and stuff, your fight or flight kicks in. It's usually the freeze part. Yep. Of the fight and so emotional stonewalling happens when you feel so emotionally flooded. You're like, I don't know what to do. I feel trapped. What's going on? And you're right. Like, how long can she talk about this? Maybe if I just stay quiet, she'll go, she'll stop talking or it'll go away. Um, when I stonewall and I have stonewalled in the past, I oftentimes psychologically go to a, a place of moral superiority where I'm like, listen to her talk. She's flying off the handle and saying all these things like, I'm not even going to engage in that kind of behavior. If I just remain silent, I'm going to, I'm taking a position of moral superiority. I'm better than, than she is. And what happens to the person, um, the person who's being stonewalled is they're really just trying to get a response from their partner. They're, they're worried about something, concerned about something. They want to have a conversation. And so because they're not getting yeah. a response, they, usually escalate. they escalate. So they go from using the 10 pound cannonball to the 25 pound cannonball. When that doesn't work, they move to the 50 pound cannonball and their emotions escalate and their voice escalates. And they start, they get to the point where they will do anything to get an emotional reaction from their partner. Even if that emotional reaction is an outburst. Yep. And that's typically what happens, at least to me, is when I stonewall and I get to a place where I can't escape and I can't calm down, it builds up and builds up and builds up. And then I fly off the handle and yell or raise my voice and say things that I probably will end up regretting. And so stonewalling is particularly cruel because it leaves your partner feeling isolated and abandoned mm -hmm. on a desert island. And it's not a place of moral superiority. It's not a better alternative to not engaging in the argument. Um, and so men who are listening, if you are a natural stonewaller, there is a better alternative. And I would love, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Right. So to go over these four horsemen, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. And chances are there's every single one of these either in your relationship or in your life. Yep. There, it's just part of being human are reverting to these kind of primitive reactions that happen when you get into an emotional state. You were going to tell the story of Pahorin and Mar Moroni? Oh, yes. This is an example in the scriptures. Um, of one of the four horsemen? Of several of the four horsemen showing up in one chapter of scripture. So we all know the story of Moroni when he writes a letter to Pahoran, essentially calling him out for not sending reinforcements to Moroni's army. And every single time I read that chapter, I'm just like, Moroni, calm down. Stop saying these things. They're so mean. But he says, like, don't you care about us? He calls him a traitor. He um, tells him that if they don't come soon. He's going to go send an army and kill them all. And it's just so, so we've got criticism going on there where he's criticizing Pahoran as a leader, as a leader, and he's threatening him, um, which is contemptuous. He's, he's putting himself in a higher up state saying that he's more righteous than Pahoran and Pahoran is being unrighteous and he's and he's also lazy. physically intimidating him saying he'll come and kill him if he doesn't and physically intimidating yeah. so there you've got criticism and contempt right there and what this chapter illustrates to me is a lot of times when these four horsemen are showing up in the relationship it's because assumptions are being made assumptions about where the other person is coming from uh, again 
when I get defensive, a lot of the times I am making assumptions about what Nate is thinking. And I'm assuming that he's thinking the worst possible thing, which is sad. It's sad that I, that I, in my brain, I revert to painting Nate in the worst possible light. And that's what Moroni did in this situation. And again, Moroni was in a very difficult situation. His, his men were dying. Um, they, they didn't have reinforcements. He was probably scared. And so again, this fight or flight mechanism kicks in and he's writing all these thoughts down, probably without really thinking them through. That's how I interpret it. Obviously, I don't know what was really going on. But Pahoran now responds with more of the antidotes, which we're going to get into of how to respond when these four horsemen start creeping up. Pahoran could have been like, forget you, Moroni. He was in a situation where his kingdom had been overrun by rebels and he had been forced to go into hiding. And instead of getting all defensive, which would have been super easy for him to do, or stonewall and just not respond to Moroni, he responded and said, you know, you censured me. That's, that was his words. Essentially, you, you really criticized me in your letter. But I know you meant well. I know you were coming from a good place. And instead of getting angry at you, I'm going to ask for your help to come help me so I can help you. And instead of the situation turning into an utter disaster, um, Moroni was able to know, oh, Pahoran isn't all these things that I thought he was. He just needs my help. He was able to help him. They were able to get all the reinforcements they need and be successful. So when we want to bring these antidotes in the relationship, it's we're turning an adversarial relationship into a partnership. It's, okay, every, every now and then, they are going to creep up in the marriage and your partner's going to do it without thinking. But you can respond in a certain way that kind of stops it dead in its tracks and helps you move forward in, in a better way. So antidote to criticism <clears throat> is what? It's to focus on what you want, to make requests, and to focus on complaining without blaming. So if you're, uh, so let's first talk about complaining without blaming. Complaining without blaming means uh, what Angela talked about earlier, you're focusing on the specific incident instead of the person's character. So it could be, hey, your job is to take out the garbage and it's overflowing and it really stinks. And um, it's kind of getting on my nerves that you haven't taken responsibility for that. Crit criticism, on the other hand. You never take out the trash. You never take out the trash. You're I can't count on you. Yeah. You're unreliable. That's criticism. Yeah. So focus on the specific circumstance and not the person's character. Um, another thing is focusing on what you want and making requests. So instead of criticizing somebody and focusing on the negative, saying, hey, I'd love it if you'd take out the trash today. Mm -hmm. Hey, it would mean a lot to me if you could just take two minutes and, and take out this trash right now because um, I have more stuff to throw away and there's no space in the garbage can. Right. Oftentimes, uh, a complaint is really a frustration that we didn't get something that we never asked for. And so placing, replacing complaints with requests is actually a much better way to deal with things in your relationship. It's a good, it's a good thing to focus on. Like if you find yourself being more of a critic and you have the propensity to attack somebody when you're feeling upset or frustrated um, for whatever reason, a great thing to focus on is making requests. 
Um, and one thing that we try to do, which is kind of what Bahorin did in this story, is assume the best in the other. So let's go back to the trash instance. How the trash is overflowing. Um, you can approach it in a situation that's like, I know that you didn't mean this. I know you didn't mean to leave the trash there. I know you've been really busy. I know you've been working really hard. Um, I just noticed that it hasn't been taken out for several days. You know, you start by assuming the best in them and saying, hey, I know that this isn't your character. I know that this isn't you, but this is what happened. And, and it makes it way less for them to get right. defensive. It's saying, I know you didn't mean to hurt me, but this is the circumstances. This is the facts of the situation that created hurt in my life, even though I know that you didn't mean to do it. This is what happened, and I would appreciate an apology. <laughs> that is a perfect example of the softened startup, which we right. talked about last we week. We did talk, well, a couple weeks ago. It was last week or two weeks ago. Anyway. Yeah. Great example. I know you didn't mean that, but, or I know you didn't mean this, and it's probably better than mm -hmm. but. So that's the antidote to criticism. Okay. So two things to focus on are, one, making requests, and two, focusing on complaining about the circumstance and not making it a direct stick attack. To the, on, stick on, to on the facts of the situation instead of the character flaws that you can do with criticism. Number two, defensiveness. What's the solution for this one? This? Miss defensive. This is so hard to do, but it's so helpful. You've gotten really good at it. Thanks. Yeah. I, I am getting a lot better yeah. at this. It's accepting as much responsibility as you can with the situation. And that's that's sometimes really hard to do. So let's go back to the trash, just because that's what we're talking about. Someone comes to you, they say, hey, I've noticed the trash hasn't been taken out. Instead of flying off the handle, you can be like, you know, you're right. It's been a few days since I took out the trash. Simple as that. You're right. Instead of explaining and saying, well, I've been so busy and I've been working so hard for the family. Look at all these things I've been doing. And why don't you take out the trash for once? It's, you know, you're right. I didn't take out the trash. Simple. Leave it at that. And that usually is enough for your partner to be like, oh, I've been heard. You know, yeah, thank you. It de-escalates. Thank you really for quick. acknowledging that. It really de-escalates it fast. Yep. And you don't have to take responsibility for everything. You just have to take responsibility for as much as is true. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be circumstances where your partner might be frustrated and upset about something and they're accusing you of things that you don't feel are true. Right. You know, and in that case, you don't need to take responsibility for that. But what you can take responsibility for, take responsibility for, hey, I realized that the tone of voice that I used probably May have come across as this. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't out to get you. Like I wasn't trying to make you look bad, but. I could see how it could have been interpreted as condescending or something like that. Does that yeah. does that make sense? That makes sense. I think so. Cool. That one, it was a really hard thing to do. And a lot of this requires stepping back and just taking a minute in your partner's shoes and thinking, yep. okay, how could this have been interpreted by my partner that is causing this reaction? And then accepting responsibility for your part in that. Even if you didn't mean to hurt them, they're hurt. Yep. So it, just accepting the responsibility of your role in the reaction that they're having. The antidote to contempt is something that I focus a lot on, and it's expressing gratitude and creating a culture of gratitude in your marriage. So there are times where um, 
a great example is I'll be downstairs in the kitchen and the kitchen is just a mess. There's pots and pans on the stove and they're dirty and there's plates and Tupperware and stuff in the sink and it's dirty. And then I go to maybe go do the dishes and then I notice the dishwasher is completely full. And I'm like, great. So I get to sit here in the kitchen and unload the dishwasher by myself and then wash the 90 bowls that are in the, in the, in the, um, it's crazy. There's two people in this house. We, I, I made a contemptuous comment the other day about bowls and cups. And I was like, Hey honey, um, I'm just looking around the kitchen right now and I see seven dirty cups. How many of them are yours? And she's like, six. <laughs> like, okay. I can't believe we live in a household of two people and go through this many dishes. Um, and it's being contemptuous. So anyway, I walk in and I look at all these dishes that I feel like I didn't dirty. And I'm like, so I get to unload the dishwasher and then I have to sit here and scrub all the pots that have gotten like nasty stuff congealed on them and load the dishwasher and start it all up and wipe down the countertops. And I probably won't even get credit for it. And I get in this negative, this totally negative um, mindset. And it pushes me more towards my contemptuous, like, er, I'm going to be mean towards my wife and say things that are not cool. And then what happens if I can flip the switch inside my head and go, hey, I'm being contemptuous. I'm going to, I need to, I need to focus on gratitude. What can I do? As I think about all the ways that Angela contributes to my to my well-being, the way the things that she does, the many countless things that she does to make my life better. Like the, how literally since we got married, I've never had, I've had to clean a bathroom maybe like twice because she's just like, I'll do it. It doesn't bother her so much. It's kind of gross to me. And she just dives in and does it. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. You know, she works full time so that I can pursue my uh, side hustle. My, it's not a side hustle, my full-time hustle, my career, my entrepreneurship dreams. And even though I am not, we're not in a position yet where I can provide full-time for our family, like she believes in what I'm doing and has made those sacrifices. And then there's like little things, you know, all these little things that she does to just make me feel amazing. And I'm sitting there in this dirty kitchen and all of a sudden, the moment I stop, I change the lens that I'm, that I'm looking through and I stop looking at the kitchen and poop colored through poop colored glasses and instead start looking at them through rose colored glasses. I start to think like, oh, I could clean this kitchen. It's really not that big a deal. It'll take me 10 minutes. And also what a great gift that I can give my wife. I know she hates doing the dishes. She hates unloading the dishwasher. And how nice would it be for her to come home from work today to a clean kitchen, like without me making a fuss over it? That's one thing that I can do to maybe make her life a little bit better and show my gratitude and appreciation for her. And then all of a sudden I'm looking forward to cleaning that kitchen. And those contemptuous thoughts have gone right out the window. And so gratitude by far is more powerful than contempt. If you can just shift your mindset a little bit and, and, and really start looking for the ways that your partner makes you, makes your life better. So definitely gratitude is a winner for when it comes to contempt. Yeah. Stonewalling. So an antidote to antidote. That's one of those moments. I could have done it and I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) An antidote. I'm proud of myself. You're so great. Thank you. An antidote for stonewalling is taking a step back and and taking a break. Um, Recognizing when you are emotionally flooded and saying, hey, um, I'm feeling a little flooded right now. Can we take a 20 minute break? And then you go separate. What do you do on that break? Um, Self-soothe. What does that mean? Taking deep breaths. Um... 
Anything that'll calm down your physiology. Right. Anything that you specifically need to do to calm down your physiology. Bring bring the high emotion level down to a more manageable level. And the main thing with this is requesting the break. Because usually if if someone's upset and they just walk out the door and slam the door and get in their car and drive off, that's a way to take a break. But if you have not that's bad. That's abandoning your partner. It to your partner, they're going to feel abandoned. Yeah. And especially in people who who have had issues with abandonment in the past, it's going to exacerbate the situation even more. Yeah. So you request this break. You set a specific time for that break. And then you always, always come back after that break and reconvene. If it's been 20 minutes that you set and you're still not calmed down, you come back and you say, look, I, I need a little bit more time. Let's come back in an hour. Um, so, however long you need, but yeah. So one of the mistakes that people make when they're t- asking for a break. So first of all, it's the, either one of you can call a break. If you're noticing your partner is feeling emotionally flooded, call a break and say, it looks like you're getting emotionally flooded. You're starting to get into, you're starting to either shut down or maybe you're becoming critical. I can tell that this conversation is. Let's take a 20 minute break. Yeah. The person who calls the break is also the person who reconvenes and and brings up the topic again. Now, a lot of people, especially people who get emotionally flooded really easily, they use the break as an opportunity to run away from the conversation and never have it. That is not what the purpose of a break is. It's not a get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to calm yourself down so that you can get into the right mindset to come back and speak about this topic in a compassionate and, and logical and empathetic way. Now, if you're incapable of doing that, it's a great sign that it's probably time to reach out to a therapist or somebody who can help you navigate one of these conversations. Like that's the role of a of a therapist or a counselor is to help couples navigate things that they can't navigate together. And if there's a conversation that comes up that typically that repeatedly sends somebody into emotional flooding, great opportunity to go get get a little bit of support and help. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. We've had conversations. That Excuse just me. no matter how many times we have them, they always end up with someone being emotionally flooded. Yeah, we just have a hard time having the conversation. So we go find our therapist and we say, hey, this is a topic that we just can't really, we're not making headway on. You know, one of us is getting overwhelmed talking about it. Can you help us out? And she provides a new new perspective, helps us navigate the issue. And then we walk out of the office and we're like, oh, that felt good. We made some progress. Mm-hmm. So um, great. That's a great signal. Um, and the goal here is always, always, always to get yourself back to a baseline where you can access compassion, creativity, thoughtfulness, um, and, and just be logical about things. I think another hiccup that you can run into in this is if you take those 20 minutes and then just replay the argument in your head over and over again, and think of all the things that you wish you could have said. I know sometimes if I like take a shower, I think I could have said this, or I could have said this. And it just riles you up even more the purpose of the 20 minutes is to calm down calm lower your heart rate be able to um, tap back into your logical brain instead of your amygdala yep yep so that wraps up the four horsemen of the apocalypse they are dangerous they will eat your marriage alive Mm -hmm. but only if you don't know the antidotes and that's what we shared with you today is the antidotes to the four horsemen let's review how to recognize when they creep up so criticism is number one Antidote is complain, don't blame, uh-huh. and focus on what you want. Perfect. Defensiveness. Antidote is um, take responsibility for take as, as much, much as responsibility you can. responsibility as you can. As much responsibility as you feel is true. Yep. 
And then contempt. contempt. Antidote is gratitude. Build a culture of gratitude. Shifting your mindset to gratitude. And then stonewalling. Self-soothing and taking breaks. Soothing. Self. Soothing. I always have a You did so good. That. that alliteration. Yeah. So our hope is that this uh, this lesson didn't freak you out and make you go, oh my gosh, we're doomed to failure. Our hope is that after learning about these four horsemen and the damage that they can do and also how simple it can be to make the shift and kind of take away the power of the four horsemen in your marriage, that you're walking away feeling hopeful, mm-hmm. that you have the tools in your tool belt that you need to start practicing. Uh, so that these four horsemen don't have power over your over you or your marriage anymore. And the cool thing about this too is it gives you a more realistic view of what a relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. Because even the best marriages have some sort of an element of these four in them. And even the best marriages have their arguments, have their disagreements, have they their issues that they're working on. They're a little overly critical of each other in some situations. And I think sometimes people run into these things and they think, oh, we have a horrible marriage or, oh, this relationship is doomed and we shouldn't progress it any further. And we would never be a great marriage relationship. Um, realistically, these are just things that happen in relationships. And there's things you can do about it. We're, we're always taught if you're prepared, you shall not fear. And that's the same with these four horsemen. Yep. Yep. You shouldn't be afraid of them if you're prepared to face them. Right. If you have a plan and you know how to recognize these things, you can overcome them. Um, so that is what our hope is from this lesson. Anything else you want to talk about? No, nope, that's all. Share it with your friends. Tag somebody who needs this in the comments. We love you guys. Yes, we do. If you enjoyed this episode, come check us out over at the Growth Marriage Podcast. Angeline and I are continuing to have some of these really interesting and complicated conversations with amazing people over on that show. And two podcasts was just too much for us to handle. So we decided we would consolidate all of our effort and attention into one. We hope we get to continue our relationship with you over there. And we hope you enjoy all the content that we've been working on while we haven't been posting here on the Mormon Marriages Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you soon.